Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the best of Tennis Channel Inside In, part one, highlighting some of our terrific discussions on the podcast in 2023. I'm your host, Mitch Michaels, and for the next two weeks, we will be releasing some of our highlights from an amazing year covering the game you know and love. It was a transcendent year in tennis in many ways, with the old guard remaining supreme in the form of Novak Djokovic, winning three majors and reaching all four major finals at the tender age of 36, ending once and for all the GOAT debate with his illustrious peers. Our first clip features the world-renowned journalist John Wertheim, a mainstay on Tennis Channel, an executive editor for Sports Illustrated, and lead contributor for CBS 60 Minutes. Wertheim broke down Djokovic's seemingly never-ending reign at the top, American men's tennis on the rise, the growing number of successful mothers in the women's game, and much more. I, I want to start with something light because you, you piqued a lot of interest with uh, Twitter, and I noticed your avatar is the movie Breaking Away, oh. and you had the refund uh, scene retweeted the other day. So it's hard to dig up info on you. I know you kind of keep that the way you like it, but back in my heyday of, of being a sports movie junkie, Breaking Away, you know, as, a, as someone that studied the classics, was high on that list. So got to give you depth. I know the Indiana roots are strong there. Did not have Breaking <laughs> Away in my uh, bingo card of topics, but I will have you know that the filmmakers, this was filmed in my hometown mm-hmm. of uh, Bloomington, Indiana, and the filmmakers said for everyone in the stands, they would make a contribution to the university. So oh. I actually, I was ah. in the stands for Dave Stoller's heroic race at the <laughs> 19, whatever it was, yeah. 81 Little 500. I don't think I'm being bold by saying it's the best cycling Great movie. movie ever. Yeah, it's Great just, best cycling movie. Yeah. Best, uh, I don't think I'm being bold saying it's the best cycling movie ever. Like, you just can't beat it. And it's total kind of... sleeper. I'll tell you something yeah. else. It really holds up. It's 40 mm-hmm. years ago. Breaking, yeah. breaking away for all the uh, younger set out there. It, it really holds up. Great, st- great film. I'm still itching for a tennis movie that's tennis-driven like that. That's not like a historical piece that right. captures the action. But no, it was good. I had, I had to mention that right. as we get into the Australian Open. The more things do change, and they are, which we'll get to, but the more things are staying the same. We, we have to start with the men's semifinals tonight. Novak Djokovic back into the semis, looking like a pretty good bet to make the final and then hoist the trophy. He's gone through Dimonau and Rublev now. It's, uh, I think, 18 straight top 10 victories on the continent of Australia. And I just have to ask you, as someone that's been around the game for so long and his career through its entirety, the question is just simple. It's like, how is it possible this guy continues to widen the gap between him and the field at age 35? I've never seen anything <laughs> like it. I would even go beyond tennis. I mean, he is playing as well as ever. And again, you, you mm-hmm. timestamp this. So I'm mm-hmm. basing this on the last six, six seven sets mm-hmm. he's played. I don't know if I've, he's ever played better. Some of that's statistical. Some of that's the eye test. I mean, he's, he's 35 years old. I think, look, he does an extraordinary job keeping himself in shape. He's mastered the mental side of tennis. The court surface is to his liking. The distraction of last year seems to be, uh, I mean, there's, there's a lot breaking right. But just from a precise tennis standpoint, the idea that he is going to be 36 years old in a few months and is not only not declining, but I would say, I mean, he just, you know, 
beat the number <laughs> five player in the world like he was a junior the other day. I, it's extraordinary, and I'm not sure I've ever seen anything like it. We've seen players, yeah. as they've gotten on, play a great match. You know, so Serena had a U.S. Open semi-match in 2019 when she looked untouchable. Mm-hmm. But then she sort of reverted to form in the yeah. final. Um, it would be, I mean, I cannot see a I don't know, can you? I can't see a no. scenario in which Djokovic doesn't win this event. I was thinking that we can kind of get to this, that Tsitsipas has given him tighter matches and it's an old injury debate where he says he's hurt and it looked like he was hurt early in the in the tournament. It, he's gotten some minor flack for how hurt really was this guy if he's dominating the field. But I, I think there is that middle ground like you talked about on TC Live and beyond that it's you're damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? You're either disingenuous or you're faking an injury. And also it's, it's an injury, which is not something that athletes necessarily have you know, I mean, they don't know a lot of yeah. times. We saw it with Taylor Fritz in, in Breakpoint's a great example. I mean, it's not even like, here's my political stance or here's... <laughs> yeah. A lot of times athletes have discovered, I mean, they genuinely don't know how their body's going to react and something they don't think is particularly serious. I mean, Nick, Nick Kyrgios played an exhibition on the eve of the tournament and then revealed he needed knee surgery. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, I think if, if athletes don't say anything and they high road it and I'm fine, I'm fine, mm-hmm. and then you find out they're not... Mm-hmm. You know, Roger Federer very rarely talked about his injuries, but then later it's like, well, they were hey, off he, similar too. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And the flip side is if they, if athletes are honest and say, yeah, I've got a twinge in my hamstring. Everyone says, Oh, you're a drama queen. I think <laughs> yeah. we all ought to uh, wide, wide berth. He plays Tommy Paul in the semifinal. What a run by the American gets to his first major semifinal, uh, kind of leading the charge on what the Americans did down under. But Tommy Paul's story is so I will say it inspiring because this was a guy who had all these gifts, junior Roland Garros champion, struggled openly with his maturity, with his effort, with his willing to work, got right, still mid-20s, found his game, found his attitude, and it's just great to see that hard work can pay off in, in a, such a grueling sport. He is such a nice player, such a good athlete, and I think he's been very, I mean, I think now now it's an open <laughs> secret, but there was an issue with the U.S. Open and showing up for a doubles match, not in position to play doubles. And that, you know, I I think it was embarrassing. It also sort of put him on the outs with the USTA for a while. And he's put that all behind him. And he's very upfront and said, look, you know, I I matured and evolved and I'm in a different place now than I was when I was a junior. And he came up with, with Francis and with Taylor Fritz and with Riley Opelka. And he wasn't seven feet tall and he didn't have Francis's backstory and he didn't have Taylor Fritz's sort of rise into the top 10 but he's really made his mark as a tennis player, and this is a big this is a big result for him. This match against Novak will be a big barometer. But no, I mean Tommy Paul is a very nice tennis player, and it's only going to get better. He beat different types of players too. He answered different tests. RBA is out there a while. Jensen Brooksby, there's nobody in tennis like that guy. So to keep going, and the work he's done with Brad Stein, they've been pretty open about the fact that you know Stein working with Jim Courier has been around champions before. I think it's another good motion for the, another good point to reinforce the stability factor. Tiafo, Fritz, and now Tommy Paul, stable camps, stable voices, taking the long approach. You know, Rome wasn't built in a day as much as we'd want it. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's a really good point that uh, Francis and Wayne Ferrer have had Mm -hmm. a nice run and and Taylor with down here in Southern Mm -hmm. California with Paul Mm -hmm. Anacone and... You know, I mean, it it's varies player to player. Some players yeah. need fresh voices, and some players need to shake things up. But if you look at, you know, even Roger, Rafa, no, yeah. like they, they did not cycle coaches in and out. And mm-hmm. the fact that um, 
these players, these young Americans have actually had longstanding relationships, I think is a really good sign. Do you think this American, I guess, surge, you know, reinvigoration, however we want to call it, there's three quarter finalists, there's a ton of players that made moves, there's going to be 10 players in the top 50 when the new rankings come out. Does this feel like a moment having been around, been around the game, been around the ups and downs, a lot of downs of American men's tennis? So, I mean, I think if, if you're inside tennis, like, mm-hmm. like you are, yeah. and you know how relentlessly global this sport is, and you know that every country has a federation that's trying to find champions, and 10 players in the top 50 for a global sport is really an achievement. You know, mm-hmm. I know some of them had more connection to the USTA than others, and some of them had more funding, and they arrived at different ways. Only one yeah. of them, John Isner, is over 30. The, the question to me is sort of the casual fan I deal with or my wife, is there a major champion in <laughs> That's there? That's it, yeah. And what would you rather have? One one Alcaraz? And I don't know the answer. I mean, it's a good yeah. sort of thought. It's a good barroom conversation. One well, Alcaraz or 10 guys in the top 50? I mean, you have more darts to throw at the board in right. theory, but this is where it's best of five. So the other theory is, you know, it's going to even out over the consistency of a best of five match to actually win a major. Right. I love the depth of the game. I think it was Riley Opelka that said, kind of foreshadowed this, like, We've got depth, like the general public doesn't know, but we don't necessarily have the world beaters. Maybe they do, and maybe some of these young players, whether it's you know the, the Sebi Cordes or the Ben Shelton's coming up, it's going to take a lot of development. But I mean, Al- Alcaraz is an outlier, and it's just right. a special talent. But what what would you take? Uh, you know, Kennan is the last American major. What would you take? Uh, Corda putting together seven amazing sets of tennis and winning a major, <laughs> or you know, it's sort of like balancing yeah, the portfolio. Yeah. Would you rather have one I unicorn know. stock or a solid growth? I, I just, yeah. I just don't know if to the and we see this in the ESPN broadcast. I mm-hmm. see it sort of even on social media chatter. Is Ben Shelton popping through? Is all of this volume, but no player in the top five, is that breaking through? I don't know the answer, but I do think it's a different. I think we could have a conversation. Yeah. Would you rather be Norway? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Or with guy yeah. getting to finals, right. or would you rather have the, the depth and the volume that the U.S. has? You're going to have either Coco, Ostapenko, Kristea, or Mukova in the final. So a little different than what we predicted, but that's been women's tennis, and it's been a pretty exciting thing for all these quality players. Right. And, I mean, I think everyone's, depending on uh, where this is, Will hopefully still be fresh. I mean, no, I everyone. I think everyone's everyone's thinking this is Coco's turn now. And yeah. Iga had given her trouble for years. Coco seemed to solve the riddle in Cincinnati. I think a lot of people wanted to see if she could do it again on the big stage. She's not going to have to do it. So um, things are breaking very Coco. Yeah. Right. It's so funny though. I mean, she left Wimbledon, and everybody was sort of really picking their words carefully. And the forehand was an open secret. It was on every it. show. Everyone every just show, said you know, the word I forehand. Remember and, yeah. and, you know, old former players <laughs> are showing how to grip it. And should she take six months off and totally retool her forehand? So, and that's a, it's an interesting point, too, because I agree with you. It seems like it is Coco's tournament now with how it's opening up. There is pressure with that. You know, she's much as made with the coaching that she has, Gilbert being on her team. I wanted to know, though, because in your opinion on this, there's a lot of people out there, tennis people, that say it really takes a couple months for a coach to make any kind of impact. And I wonder if this could be like a placebo effect type thing or like a mental freshening up of just a different approach. Because I don't, I mean, the game has always been there, minus the forehand breaking down. I almost feel like there hasn't been too much technically different. She's just continuing to fight and win all these three-set matches, which was kind of always in there. 
Yeah, I mean, so, some of this might be sort of the, the myth of uh, the hot hand and the myth of streaks, yeah. and maybe this is just things are regressing to the mean. I mean, you do wonder if uh, if, if you or I coach her, would these results be different? How much <laughs> saying you need to make the match physical or yeah, yeah. keep keep fighting? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, th- I think we think of a coach as sort of having a calming relationship. I don't think at this level necessarily yeah. coaches are particularly technical. You know, you're, right. you're not telling Novak Djokovic how to, you know, <laughs> Change his no. grip at this point in the game. Yeah. But something's clearly working. And I, I, I think the other thing about being it, it's a little tricky figuring out how much credit to give the player versus how much the coach. And I think, you know, whether it's causation or correlation, <laughs> yeah. and obviously the results since Brad Gilbert in particular has come on. I mean, the results speak for themselves. I also warn against getting too carried away with crediting the coach because right. the player's the one that's got to go out there and <laughs> yeah. ultimately deal. You brought up something else on Twitter. It's that these moms are coming back more focused. It's kind of interesting to see with Svitolina and Wozniacki that they're adding stuff to their games and they're just maybe even locking in more than they did before. Yeah, I mean, we could sort of joke about <laughs> yeah. it. And, well, when you're chasing yeah. around kids, it <laughs> yeah. changes your mentality. But I also think you take time off and you sort of say to yourself, what did I do well? What could I do better? If I were given a second chance, what mm-hmm. would I do? And I think that that's the case as much as anything. And, yeah. I mean, the, the Svitolina is a great story. Taylor Townsend's a great story. It's not just the statistic. When we say, oh, you know, they're, they're, I think there were 10 moms in the uh-huh. main yeah. draw. But some of them really made a mark on this tournament. It's not mm-hmm. just the, the sheer number of them. But I do think it's interesting that uh, Svitolina and Wozniacki spring to mind as players who their, their 2.0 is different yeah. than what, uh, what they looked like when they were top 10 players. Yeah, and I think the U.S. Open on the men's side is in such a great situation because obviously they're. I'm kind of seeing people, fans, and media bill Alcaraz, Djokovic, almost like combat sports. Like we want that next edition, yeah, exactly. we want the rematch. But if it doesn't happen, it could be an American. It could be a guy like Center, former champ like Medvedev. Not the not the worst thing. I don't think there's like a a floor that's really bad for how this plays out. Yeah, and I think that's something we often <laughs> for, forget about the you know, yeah. what tennis going to look like after the big three. Yeah. You know what? There'll be storylines, and whether it's Medvedev winning his second U.S. Open in in three years, or whether it's you yeah. know, the, the rise of the Americans, they'll, they'll always be a story. Yeah. And I also want to give props to John Isner. His retirement as well loses to Michael Moe in five sets, but he you know, held that mantle for American tennis, and I know it wasn't as high as even it is right now, but you know, it's the same thing with like James Blake, who was a mentor to him, and these players that you know do their best, carry the mantle. It's not their fault that the contemporaries aren't there. I also think Isner was generally appreciative of that next generation taking it a little further. Yeah, I, th- I think it's just sort of a, a consummate pro, and I think he gave his respect to superior players. I think he knew what his strengths and weaknesses were. He made life really mm. difficult for a lot of players. I mean, there's there's no way you can simulate. You can't tell your yeah. practice partner, hey, go be a 6'9 guy that serves <laughs> like that. But I also think you're right. His willingness to mentor and his, I think he's he's happy at the state mm-hmm. in which he's leaving yeah. American men's tennis. He'll, he'll be missed. Few people in tennis are regarded higher and frankly more like than Lindsay Davenport. She's a Hall of Famer, a three-time major champ, a year-end number one, and one of the premier analysts in tennis today. Here's Lindsay Davenport breaking down the competitive state of the women's game, Anj Jabor's impact on the world, Coco Goff's tremendous season, and her own new role as the 2024 captain of the American Billie Jean King Cup team. Oh, and she also explains why sometimes you just can't compete with the Stanley Cup. What's interesting and so fascinating is we talked to a lot of different people about Wimbledon, the championships, 
all these memories that they had from their playing, coaching, or commentary career. It's pretty straightforward. You had the memory. Like, <laughs> there's not, oh, what was your favorite memory? Winning in 99 over at the time until Serena came along, the greatest of all time, Steffi Greff's last match in a major. It doesn't really get much sweeter than that. Yeah, it was a kind of an amazing two weeks. And sometimes you have to have things go your way. Obviously, it's, it's mainly about the tennis, but all the little things that can go your way also help. You know, in the beginning of my career, I was awful on grass. Lost in the first round the one time I played in juniors. Lost in qualies badly. Barely won games uh, the one time I played in the qualies. Um, took a few grass court lessons from some veteran players like Natalie Tazier and Larissa Savchenko early in my career. Um, wasn't really sure that Wimbledon was in the cards for me. And by the time 99 rolled around, I'd played, you know, six or seven years now, at least for a few weeks on the grass and was feeling much more comfortable um, we had a lot of rain those two weeks, a lot of rain. Um, the schedule kind of worked out in my favor where I would somehow get my match in because I was mm -hmm. scheduled early. There were no roofs back then on center or court yeah. number one. So big backlog of matches. Um, and by the time I got to the final, um, really, it, it can go either way where you get to a final and you're so nervous. I was walking out there against Steffi. I mean, it was like, <laughs> yeah. oh my, she's an enormous favorite. I'd never been to this stage at Wimbledon. Um, and for some reason, I was able to lock in and just play great tennis right at the time in the second set where we were on serve. I had won the first set. I think it was around three all, maybe three two. Mm -hmm. um, there was a slight rain delay. And I always look back at that. For some players that are up, it can kind of change the momentum the wrong way. But I came off the court, and I'll, it, it definitely helped me. I, I remember saying to my coach, Robert, at the time, like, holy crap. Like, <laughs> yeah. I can't believe this is happening. Yeah. And I remember he just looked at me, and he's like, I'm telling you, you got this. He's yeah. like, you know, X, Y, Z, but you, this is your match. You can do this. And I just remember that kind of settling me down. And when I went back out there, had that attitude of, yeah, I can do this. I'm also impressed too. I mean, how much she enjoys being out there, the flair that she has, which is great to see. She's got people outside the tennis bubble. Like my sister will text me about Anshibor and she's not like a diehard, diehard like that. But, you know, I, I just, the love she has for the game, the fact that she also, I mean, every metric there is for tennis players from where she's from, she has. Like, it's, you can find a stat, she is that player. And it's almost being taken for granted in a way. Like, this is a true pioneer. That board gets thrown around a lot, but she really has walked through the door for the first time in a lot of regards. Yeah, and, you know, it's something that it, when we're, excuse me, when I'm commentating her matches, it's like I'm so hesitant to even discuss it too much because it just seems like I have no idea. I mean, we read yeah. about everything she had to go through. Um, how just unprecedented her as a female also yeah. growing up in that area, not having the access to a lot of tennis courts in Tunisia, her refusal to kind of move away and do mm -hmm. the academy thing at a young age, how far her parents would have to drive just to find a tennis court. It's, it's really kind of overwhelming. You almost feel, I mean, I almost feel like so bad I could just walk out and just mm -hmm. walk onto a tennis court mm -hmm. publicly in the United States anytime that, you know, I felt yeah. like practicing. So, you know, everything that she's done I and mean, how many doors that she's opening for Arab women, for African women, all of it is, is got to be overwhelming for her. And, and, you know, there's obviously that series on Netflix. Yeah. Breakpoint. I always want to say point break. So <laughs> it like always movie. takes me a second. Exactly. It's just right? that like, Neptune's nest a little bit ago. Exactly. So, uh, like, don't get yeah. this messed up. I'm breakpoint. She was the player I learned the most about mm -hmm. in, in, in seeing those kind of images and the, and the footage from her off mm -hmm. the court with her husband and her team. Um, and that was awesome to even get yeah. that kind of glimpse into her and how she mm -hmm. kind of tries to handle everything and how truly famous and well-known she is in her area.
Lindsey Davenport, uh, great tennis commentator, also a Anaheim Ducks fan. Yes. Because her, her friend, little Marcel, Marcel Dion's daughter. <laughs> yeah, do you remember I that? Did, oh, that's yeah. funny. Yeah. My, but when yeah. I grew up, my parents had King's season yeah. tickets. So, and then um, Lisa Dion was one of my best friends mm-hmm. before dad Marcel got <laughs> traded. That's when I learned how you didn't sports know who, and team sports. You didn't know who like, he was. Wait, like, what do you yeah. mean she's leaving? Yeah. Like, oh, uh, her dad's like going to a different city. I'm like, wait, wow. what? Um, but no, hockey's always been one of my favorite oh, yeah. sports. It's the best. I mean, I yeah. don't know that I'm crazy about the Ducks thing, but whatever. Yeah, get over hey, it. Yeah, we're we're all fans get over here. It. But and, and it was cool that you know you got to go to all those games with little Jackson can I, Jagger kind of in there. Can I tell you yeah. the season they won yeah. the Stanley Cup was the season? Um, excuse me, was the year I was pregnant. Yeah, we went <laughs> to watch them win the Stanley Cup on. I'm going to get the day right. I believe it was Wednesday night. Okay, they won it. We had some friends on the team. Team Mussolini, who's a huge tennis fan of. <laughs> friend of ours Scott yeah. Niedermeyer a friend of ours and we're banging on the glass right in front of us when they won we were I was like in tears massively <laughs> pregnant I had Jagger three or four days later the first time my husband left the hospital on day two was to go to the Niedermeyer's house because they had the Stanley Cup there the cup party yeah oh, wow. I'm like wait you're leaving wow. me he's like babe I'm going to see the Stanley <laughs> Cup I'm out of here you're fine in the hospital that's so, hilarious yeah that's, I mean hey I don't I'm not gonna ever defend leaving uh, just give birth wife but cup party Scott Niedermeyer. I had no chance then he's okay. like I'm out listen it was always um a huge moment in my career and a huge dream of mine. Anytime I got to represent my country, um, I was born into a very patriotic family. I was born with a dad who was an Olympian. And so representing my country has always been like the highest honor. So, um, yeah, I was pretty, pretty happy when things worked out and able to try and give this a shot. Um, what an uh, amazing, um, opportunity, but also, um, a lot of pressure here. I'm like, come on, we got to do this. Um, I was part of a couple winning teams, the last one in 2000. And I was like stunned to learn that it, the U S has only won it one time since in 2017. So looking to hopefully try, uh, and turn that around. And Mm -hmm. right now, I mean, we have amazing American players. So hopefully I just keep my mouth shut (laughs) and just let them do their thing. Uh, things will happen. I know you're not one that's huge collectibles or, you know, showing off your accomplishments, but it was that 2000 team. There's a photo that's been circulating a bunch on the internet, even before you got the job. It's like the iconic team. It's you, the Williams sisters, and Monica Sells. That like was that 99, has, I 99, think. Okay. 99, yeah. Okay. No, it, it, you know, crazy when we think back. Like, like that team's insane. I, I don't even know how <laughs> Billie Jean was able to do it because there were so many of us um, in the top 10. There were so many yep. of us going after Grand Slam titles. We can't forget uh, Jennifer Capriotti, myself, Monica, and I think it was Lisa Raymond was the 2000 mm. team. So <laughs> anyway, you kind of like look yep. at it. Um, there was a lot of juggling. And when I think back, like I never felt like that was the case when we were mm-hmm. playing. That's what an amazing job Billie Jean did. And like, if I look at where I am now in my position, when we have Coco, we have Jess Pagula, we have Madison right outside the top 10. We have yeah. just this amazing group right now of players as well. And I look forward to hopefully having that same kind of um, great camaraderie and teamwork and um, first, you got to make them buy in how yeah. important this event is mm-hmm. and uh, look forward to trying to do that. The in-game stuff, because it's so rare, right? Even with coaching now, having a captain on the court as your motivation, but also giving you advice. What can you learn from, I guess, that process when you were a player that you're going to try to <laughs> I was like, the players? I was like the biggest nightmare because I was like, <laughs> Billy, I put my hand up. Like, I'm not ready to hear anything. I know you're an all-time great, but I got totally, it. Totally, totally. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's so funny. Yeah. The other thing that Billy used to do, which is really funny, is she would just watch her player. 
So like mm. she wouldn't turn her neck from side to side. She was always just interested. And a couple of times I was like, Billy, you're freaking me out here. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But I think when you're really close and you have a good relationship with someone, um, there's like honest feedback. And mm -hmm. of course there's a gigantic learning curve for myself on um, getting to know the players even better. So know what they like, when to say something, when not to. Um, and obviously looking forward to working with all the players and their yeah. own teams. I, yeah. I don't... You know, the format's so different now right. that it, you can't, um, not naive to think like, oh, I'm going to really help someone with their game. My mm -hmm. job is to help man help them manage certain matches, help put them mm -hmm. in the right position to play those matches, um, and then we'll see what happens. You know, Coco Goff comes into here with, off of her first major. She beat Ons pretty thoroughly last time, but there's been developments in her game, also how she's handled expectations. I know she had the loss to Iga, but Coco, it's always maturity with her. It seems, it seems to be the word that comes up. Even handling success, it's not surprising, but she's handled it as well as anyone can. Yeah, I mean, I actually love um, what she's done since winning the U.S. Open because players go in a lot of different trajectories after winning a major. Some, you know, keep playing or go chase the money or go everywhere. And, there, you know, last fall was a really tough time if you were a golf fan watching her play. She played in the Open, then she played in San Diego, then she played in Mexico, then she played in Fort Worth, and it was tough. And, you know, if you looked at her at any of, like, the, the replays, if you look in her eyes, she did not look happy. Yeah. And I remember watching her in Fort Worth, um, and I remember thinking, oh, my gosh, I hope we don't lose her. Mm. You know, I hope, like, overplaying and all the expectations and all these things on such a, an amazing talent. Listen, we've seen it a lot in women's tennis. And I remember thinking, gosh, I hope this doesn't happen. And amazing job by her team, her family this year in kind of getting rid of that. You're exhausted at the end of the year, yeah. right? And now you have this life-changing moment at the Open. She's played one tournament. She's ready to go here now. And so I, I don't know. I, I love to see that. And I mean, I shouldn't be saying don't play <laughs> tournaments. So I don't mean <laughs> yeah. to propose that. Yeah. But you want to see Coco Golf playing into her mid-30s. Yeah. You've got to keep her fresh. You've got to keep her happy. Let her celebrate um, her biggest goal since, you know, she's picked up a racket. Um, I really like the way that she played in her first match. She's obviously a big favorite. Listen, she's going to go achieve many, yeah. many more amazing things. But for Sabalenka, it's still just a fascinating experience to watch when it is going right. The unrelenting power. Yeah. The downside of that being there are times when it doesn't go right and you feel like the wheels are, you can physically see wheels coming off. So when you call a Sabalenka match, what's your take on how she maybe would be able to rein it in and not just go for broke every single time? Yeah, I, I have to say, I have, like, on the respect meter, my respect for her is off the charts, honestly, because if you watch her play a few years ago, if you see what kind of player she was, I mean, there is no question that she has put everything together to become number one. And, and she's talked about it a little bit, but from how she works out to her diet to how she practices to how she mentally approaches matches – um, she's gotten to number one because of an incredible amount of hard work. And I think it was maybe when she won the Australian Open, she's, she made like a little quote like, oh, I haven't had sugar in six months. Or, <laughs> you know, and you watch these videos of her yeah. um, working out. And, you know, she's, she even talked about we started from the inside out. The very basic, just trying to get yeah. control. I mean, she is like a physical specimen now. <laughs> so I don't know. I think that whenever somebody's willing to do that and make those sacrifices to to get to number one, it, it's a pretty awesome yeah. accomplishment. Some players are too scared to do that. Right. And so I give her a lot of credit um, for doing that. Um, of course, there's a couple things. You know, she gets like, you know, excited. She pulls off shots. She gets <laughs> off balance. She falls over. Um, so, yeah. 
I, I still think she can get better. Yeah. And that's not always the case with a world number one. If you watch tennis on television, you know exactly who Robbie Koenig is. The South African broadcaster went viral before that was a thing, captivating audiences with his quick wit and outstanding commentary. He joined Inside In after the 2023 Wimbledon Championships, breaking down how Carlos Alcaraz outlasted Novak Djokovic in five throwing sets to claim the title. And he also discussed why Marketa Vandrosva's confidence propelled her to become another member of a long line of Czech female major champions. Koenig also peels back the curtain and discusses how he crafted and perfected his unique style in the broadcast booth. I have to also bring this up because I mentioned the enthusiasm and, you know, your wordplay is kind of the stuff of legends. So I want to know where that came from and how that, you know, comes out of you in big matches. Some of the phrasing, some of the exciting, yeah. you know, wordsmith wordplay that you use to describe some of this scintillating action. Yeah, so... so I I worked quite hard on that. You know, when social media first started coming out and it started to play a bigger role in tennis, and I'd go back and listen to cuts of points that were played. And of course, you know, generally it's the highlights of, of what's going on in a match. And I found that I was often using the same adjectives to describe unbelievable points. And it was just basically very repetitive. And it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't that, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not innovative, but it wasn't a, it wasn't enough mix of a description. Sport variety or something. Variety, yeah. it's not enough variety. And you know, sport by, by nature is repetitive, especially our sport. There's only so many ways um, where you think you can describe a foreign cross-court winner or you know, foreign down the line winner. And you don't want to say the obvious, oh, it's an unbelievable foreign down the line winner because everybody can see that at home, right? Yeah. So... When that started to happen in, in social media, and I found I was saying, oh, that's an unbelievable shot. That's an unbelievable shot. That's an unbelievable shot. But those shots in real time have happened 10 or 15 minutes apart. Then I realized I was just using the same adjectives all the time. And I said, listen, I have to be better than this. And how I started was I just, you know, I'd go to the, the, the uh, thesaurus and just look up unbelievable and see the different ways uh, of the, the synonyms for unbelievable, yeah. you know, jaw-dropping, redlining, whatever it might be. So then I, I literally started to make notes to improve my vocabulary so that my presentation and content could be better. And then that, that have just evolved over time, right? And then, you know, you read something good in a sports book or a phrase that I listened to somebody on basketball using. I, I like the phrase, but that's very basketball specific. How can I use that in a tennis term, you know? So I would start to really work on my language and, and get better in that department because ultimately I'm in the speaking game, right? Yeah. Speaking yeah. and analysis game. So, you know, that, that's where I wanted to be. And naturally I'm an enthusiastic guy. So when somebody does hit an unbelievable shot, I don't want to be saying, oh, that's an unbelievable falling down the line, right? Because someone at home thinking, I mean, Robbie's hardly got up for that. The guy's just like an absolute screamer. And is he watching the same match as me? Mm -hmm. I'm a sports fan like everybody else, right? I mean, yeah. I get excited naturally. I'm naturally an enthusiastic guy. So, But also the, the discipline when you, when you get a nice word or phrase, and this is something I used to do in the early days, you just crowbar it in there because you think, hey, it's such a nice phrase, I must use it. And then you realize, oh, shit, man, you know, it wasn't the right time, it wasn't the right place, and it wasn't the right player. And then some phrases, you know, I try and keep specifically for a player that just suits 
that certain player. And then sometimes, you know, you'd wait a whole tournament and you wouldn't get to use it because he would lose early. And then I got to wait another two weeks because he's not playing. Yeah. And that would frustrate me. But the, the pleasure it would give me when I picked the right moment to describe an unbelievable shot or rally or something that happens in a match was the skill that I started to develop. Just the patience, just be patient, right? For somebody with all the accolades and all the hype that Alcaraz has, Robbie, he outperformed Djokovic in a fifth set of a major final. It's just insane to me. For me, what this gives to Alcaraz from a mental perspective after what happened at the French Open, that is almost immeasurable for me, Mitch. You know, these days, these kind of matches like, you know, literally balance on the width of an atom, right? Uh, it's so competitive, our sport. But um, I think Novak summed it up beautifully after the match, Mitch, when he when for the first time I've heard him speak about Alcaraz in, in, in really glowing terms. It's like, okay, I've had a feel of this guy now a couple of times and um, I'm really impressed. He is yeah. such a complete player and he made that reference to the fact that he has a bit of Roger in him, a bit of Rafa in him, and he sees a little bit of himself as well uh, in him. And, you know, that's high praise. Djokovic, this is what I like about Djokovic. He doesn't just dish out that kind of praise. He didn't dish it out the first time he lost to him. Right? Yeah, you have He's, to earn it. <laughs> absolutely. He reserved his judgment, didn't he? He just built to handle this. Like everyone, like kids today now say oh, someone's built different. He really is in the sense that he's built to handle the weight of these big matches, these big moments, and the responsibility that it comes with being the next guy after this iconic era. But how's this guy's mentality on the court? I have never seen somebody who has such relaxed concentration. Most of the players, I mean, maybe Roger's probably similar in that department, but most guys have intense concentration. I call it relaxed concentration. The fact that he plays with a smile, yeah. he shifts his racket at his box as if to say, okay, watch this now. And, and that is such a great skill to have. Being able to concentrate for long periods of time is taxing. But I yeah. think he's got this formula, Mitch, that, that allows him to concentrate easy, which is a massive advantage. He's, uh, yeah, smiling like after winners. Like, yeah, I did that. That was, that was me. Yeah, brilliant, right? A lot was made about this win for Alcaraz as a passing of the torch moment. And I don't want to you know, nay, nay, that idea in theory, because Alcaraz is a winner. He's going to keep winning. I'm not, not going to doubt that at all, but I just also want to point out, Robbie, I don't think that Novak's done winning. I think we got a couple of years left and it's great to have a rivalry of sorts, but I don't think this is a true, like, that's it for Novak. He's done not in the slightest. No, not in the slightest. Uh, you know, a couple of commentators that I was listening to here, were, were talking about the Federer Sampras match, you know, it's similar to that. It's not similar at all. Djokovic has just won two majors this year, by the way. Yeah. And Alcaraz has just and only just sneaked out this one. And I think this is the first year where Novak is has been, you know, being able to play the schedule that he wants to play, He'll be able to come back and play. In fact, he hasn't. He didn't, he wasn't allowed to play in the States this year. So his preparation hasn't been ideal yet. Mm -hmm. He'll only be allowed to play in the States now in the events leading up to the US Open for the very first time. So he's had such a disrupted last couple of years that, you know, if, if he's going to be in full flow and play the schedule he wants for the next three or four years, he's going to be he's going to be challenging at the sharp end. I mean, look how easily he cruised through the draw at Wimbledon. But it's definitely no passing of the torch. I, I don't even think it's remotely comparable 
to the Sampras Federer match that everybody was talking oh. about. Federer, another two years to win a major, right? Let's not forget that. Robbie Marketa Vandrosva, Wimbledon champion, the unseated player. That hadn't happened, just an unseated player getting that far in a couple of decades, but she had two grass wins at her pro career at the start of this year's season, and now she's a Wimbledon champ. I mean, I mean, Chris didn't have that many more at the start of this girl's yeah. course. I think he yeah. won a couple of matches at, at Wimbledon. That was about it. It's, um, But it just shows you, you know, the cream always rises to the top. A lot of people forgot that she was a French Open finalist as well, so let's not forget that. She'd, she'd been deep in a major, and... I'm just wondering if like the, the expectations were pretty low for her coming in. And sometimes that's, that's such a powerful position to be in, right? Uh, you don't expect too much, but it just shows you the importance of handling nerves in big situations. We, we so often talk about the game and we make reference to how great someone's serve or forehand or backhand is. But when you get into the biggest moments and the biggest matches, you know, it's what's between your ears. That's the glue that keeps the game together. And Vondrosova, she's just got, you know, we were talking about Alcaraz, what a great personality he has on court. She is very similar. She looks so relaxed mentally yeah. on the tennis court. She, she looks like she's playing with a lot of mental freedom. And, you know, that is invaluable, man. What about the Czech Republic? Is a, you know, Czech Another Republic. lefty Czech. Czech, yeah. Czech, yeah. yeah. Got to get that right. It's called yeah. Czech now. So excuse me to our, our Czech friends out yeah. there. Czech, yeah. I mean, it's just a production line. You know, I went back to see where it all started and um, just having a look at the major winners. You know, it started with Manlikova and Navratilova. Um, they were the ones who really did set the ball rolling. And, you know, of course, Martina works for Tennis Channel and uh, probably my favorite goat. She's my goat. Martina. Uh, look, I've always had a soft spot for Martina. Ever look, since her rivalry with uh, Chrissy was what I grew up with. If, if we're talking, you know, Wimbledon, her versus Serena, it's pretty cool. Like that's one where, you know, surface specific, right? Like what Martina did at that tournament at the background you have on your Zoom chat here, she was, and doubles too. Like there's, you know, what she's done there will never probably be seen again. I mean, there's, there's a lot of great Martina stats, yeah. but my favorite one of all and um, will be that she has won the doubles at every major at least seven times. Yeah. What? At least seven, some more. But just getting back, you know, she got the ball rolling, uh, obviously, being from Czechia and Manlikova, and then they just started to come after that, right? And I made the comparison on Twitter to, and I, I, use about, I use the word culture, and I think it's important. Their tennis culture is so strong. And I compared it to the, um, the All Blacks. I don't know if you follow rugby, but the yeah. All Blacks. Mm -hmm. New Zealand is a country of 5 million people, but their rugby culture is just they're rugby crazy. And they have dominated the sport since the 80s. Yeah. They are the winningest international team in all of sport. And they've got 5 million population, right? Yeah. I mean, because their rugby culture is so strong from the top end right through, you know, all the school levels. Um, and they're able to beat everybody because their culture is so good. And I think it's the same for, for Czech tennis and especially strong on the woman's side. Jim Courier is up next on the best of Tennis Channel Inside In and the Hall of Famer is unquestionably one of the best broadcasters in the business. He was a guest on the show last month as the ATP season was winding down and he had a lot to say about the remarkable season that Novak Djokovic put together. 
Courier also dived into Yannick Sinner's improvement, how Holger Runa can take the next step in his game, and what Noe's rivalry with Carlos Alcaraz has meant for the sport. It's the one and only Jim Courier now on Tennis Channel Inside In. Pam Shriver on the show a couple weeks ago said that she thought this was the first time in the men's game 2023 where you got to look at really what the future is like. Obviously, Djokovic at the top, but he's the last of the big three still at the very top. We'll see what happens with Rafa. Would you agree with that, that we're starting we're starting to kind of see what it looks like in the post-big three, post-even Djokovic era? I think it is starting to crystallize. Yeah. I do think when, when you have someone like Alcaraz, who's won now two majors, mm-hmm. and you see the gains that people like Yannick Sinner have made, and then Medvedev back in the fray. You look at yeah. the names in, in this year's final uh, in Torino, and you go, yeah, these are the guys actually we probably expected to be here. Uh, these are guys like Rublev, who's been here now four years running, Medvedev mm-hmm. five years running, Zverev back in form and back in the top eight. No real outliers that have really popped up. Yeah, it's it's remarkable. There's still the big dog at the top, though, 36-year-old Novak Djokovic, uh, eighth-year-end, world number one, extending his record. And Jim, 52-5 and five on the year. So he's winning 91% of his matches as we record this. And it's remarkable in a lot of ways. You can't really use enough superlatives to describe him. But I keep coming back to, he's the 36-year-old. He's the old guard. And yet he's the fresh one. He's the one that holds up the most physically. That part will never be normal to me. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> um, 36 was... You know, the very tail end of a lot of great careers that, that lasted a long time. I think of Andre Agassi my, mm-hmm. and my peer who played into his mid-30s, but mm-hmm. his body was breaking down. And he still was awesome, mm-hmm. but not as mobile as he was. And Novak doesn't look like he's lost a step. His defense looks every yeah. bit as good. And then this year, I think his forehand and his volleys have been better than ever. Forehand out of necessity in Australia. The volleys in the finals of Cincinnati against Alcaraz were out of this world. And he, he just finds a way to keep fresh and mm-hmm. stay sharp and just keep tamping <laughs> down all these challengers. Yeah, two things that you've pointed out, especially in commentary, how the serve has gone better. But also, he will come to net on big points. We saw it even in the Holger-Runa match in the group stage. Yeah. He'll go big on serves. That Alcaraz match, I think you and you and Jason Goodall highlighted it. There were some big points, break points faced where he just went as big as ever, and you marvel at how he can just push the right buttons at the right time in these high-pressure stakes. He's done it so many times, right? He has as much big match experience as any player who's ever played the game, and he's got a lot of trust in himself. And doesn't mean that it's foolproof, because the <laughs> double faults will happen, mm-hmm. invariably when you take that much risk, sometimes you're, you're going to crash. But more often than not, he's someone who's been able to come through uh, and just continue to trust himself and back himself whenever he gets pushed into a corner. You know, his number one rival this year was Carlos Alcaraz, the only man to beat him in a major, the only major winner outside of Djokovic. What was you know your initial thought of the rivalry? We know that every time they play, it seems to be classic Wimbledon, Roland Garros, and of course the Cincinnati final. But that rivalry really grew this year, and it really you know re-energized Djokovic also, but also showed Alcaraz that there is one more level to go what was your thought on that rivalry this year? I think it's been magical for tennis. I have a lot of friends that are not avid tennis fans who are now really big Alcaraz fans because they got to see him compared to Djokovic's greatness mm-hmm. in that Wimbledon final. And that, I think, gives people a level to see where Alcaraz is. And then that gives Alcaraz a level mm-hmm. to see where he is, too. He learned a lot, I'm sure, at Roland Garros. In, in defeat there and not being able to control his body again in really hot conditions mm-hmm. and getting worn down. 
and how to manage maybe his, his taking fuel on board and making sure he, his fitness level stayed there. But he also seemed to grow in real time in that Wimbledon final as far as his learning curve on grass and, and doing it against Djokovic, you know, along with Federer, mm-hmm. you know, the two most successful guys at Wimbledon. Pretty amazing to see. <laughs> and uh, then the, the, Cincinnati, the yeah. Cincinnati match was quite simply the best, best of three sets men's match I've ever witnessed. It was <laughs> just astonishing in the drama, the level of play, uh, the conditions, it was everything you'd want in a match, and, and they were awesome together. I always say, like, especially these non-major matches, Djokovic isn't just ripping his shirt off in celebration for beating just anyone. He's not putting the phone down, the Ben Shelton thing, for just about anyone. When yeah. he has a real test and he passes, that's when you see it come out. And for Alcaraz, you mentioned the real-time growth, that Miami match against Sinner where you mm-hmm. were on the call, the cramping was there. It mm-hmm. happened at Roland Garros. For the most part, it's been non-existent since that. I just... Again, I go back to how weird, and that's just the word I'm defaulting to. It's weird that the older guy has got, you know, the advantage physically in this Mm. rivalry. We've seen generational tennis matches before. Usually it's a couple matches here or there, and then the young buck comes through. Yeah. Not so far, at least. Djokovic is a different different dude. And he's got all that experience that he's gained over the course of his career on how to manage his body in those extreme conditions. You have to remember he struggled mightily early in Mm. his career before he went gluten-free, so he's become... Uh, the master of management when it comes to yeah. lengthy matches. And Alcaraz and, and Runa, those guys have a lot to learn in that yeah. department. they got a lot of upside, but there's also plenty of room for growth for them to learn how to manage those difficult situations that are going to come up again. It's been fun to see uh, the fourth player in this tournament who finished on strongly post-US Open, Yannick Sinner. You know, wins three titles, Canada and onward. Beats Medvedev twice, who hadn't, hadn't happened before, so it was good to see him get the rhythm there. I think what we've all seen, Jim, is the process. It's been about working with Darren Cahill, with his team, getting better slowly over time. Another super young guy that's starting to creep on that top tier of tennis, and we'll see what happens at this tournament. This could be the breakthrough for him. It could be. It's been um, it's been remarkable to watch his growth in the past two years. I still marvel at, at his uh, chutzpah to fire his team when he was already really good, mm-hmm. but the results have been unmistakable with the new team. He's up yeah. four in the world. He's improved so many aspects of his game, he's, a, he's improved his movement, which has been a big part of his success. Yep. He's a much better defense to offense player than he, than he ever was, especially out of the forehand corner. He's toggled his serve quite a bit in the past year and a mm-hmm. half, and that's improved mightily as well. And for my mind, he's kind of becoming the new Stanimal. He's, he's got that power off the forehand and the back, and he's the most powerful <laughs> ground stroker yeah. of the tournament here in Torino on a consistent basis. You know, he can beat yeah. you both ways, and that that's a problem for people like Djokovic. Mm-hmm. We're on, you know, we're on the few minutes away from mm-hmm. them getting started in their round robin match, yeah. and um, th- I'm excited to see how they match up on a hard court for right. the first time. But Sinner, he's ambitious. He is uh, patient. And uh, he is going to be a real problem for everybody here going forward. Yeah. One of those young guys has been Holger Runa, who's been just a remarkable, you know, topsy-turvy year. I guess the first thing I have for you, Jim, is are you surprised that there was that dip after, I mean, essentially Wimbledon, he went winless for a long time? Well, I think we were surprised. And then when we found out that he'd been suffering from a pinched nerve in his back, it made mm. a lot more sense. Yeah. And there had been a lot of, uh, a lot of complications with his mm. coaching team as well. From the, the clay court season on, there was a lot of movement there mm-hmm. between Lars Christensen and Patrick Muradoglu back and forth. And then eventually Boris Beckert entered the scene this fall. And that seemed yeah. to time out with his body being right. back to full strength as far as health goes, maybe yeah. not full fitness. 
but the confidence has come back, and that's been uh, that's yeah. been nice to see because he's a player with swagger. He's a character <laughs> yeah. uh, in this in this new younger triumvirate with Runa and Alcaraz and, and Sinner. He's different, you know, and and that's you want you want three different guys like that coming through. They may not be the next big <laughs> three, but they're in the same age group and they've got the same ambition. It's going to be interesting to watch those guys. He definitely doesn't fear anyone, which no. you can say is a good thing. You know, he's brash, he's not perfect, but who is? And there's an opportunity for him to make noise. I think, and I don't know, I've never talked to Boris, but the professional side of like, look, I've been here, I've I've made the mistakes. I don't know tactically how that fits in, but I think having a professional and a Hall of Famer is a very good thing for Holger at this stage. Holger's going to respect Boris, yeah. and he's going to know that Boris did amazing work with Djokovic. Djokovic mm-hmm. was a player who was fully formed at that point, yeah. but was struggling to manage pressure and expectation in the yeah. major finals. And Boris helped him unequivocally get past that. He yeah. became the player he is today because he and Boris linked up. This is a different project. Holgaruna yeah. needs a lot of work in a lot of different areas. I would think it's extremely exciting for Boris to have a chance to help shape not just the, the mindset, but also mm-hmm. the, the, the strategy and, and uh, fill out some holes in the game mm-hmm. and, and make sure that, that everything is looked after. It's a great opportunity for both of them. Few commentators speak as freely as Greg Rosetsky, and it's refreshing to hear his informed tennis takes. The former British number one joined inside in after the U.S. Open to recap another Djokovic title, Coco Golf's incredible run to claim her first major, and to discuss why Andy Murray is still in the fight and carrying the flag for British tennis. Here's Greg Rosetsky on the best of Tennis Channel Inside In, unfiltered as always. Yeah, and I wanted to get your thoughts on Coco before we go to Djokovic because isn't it kind of funny how the last couple months went? Because Wimbledon, right in your backyard, you saw her lose first round to Kennan. She was her game was in disarray. People were doubting it. Every commentator was talking about what they would do with their forehand. But she went to the experts, and I bring it together because we've talked about Coco a while on this show and beyond. But continuity and good coaching and good you know development matters, even if you are. In Coco's case, one of the best athletes in the world, she just needed that extra 2%, 3%, and she found the right guys in her team to do it. Well, she did. I think um, that's the key for, for Coco. I mean, she's a phenomenal athlete, mentally so tough. We talked about the forehand problems, the second serve problems. And, you know, Brad just brought a perspective. Let's not focus on those things. Let's get the job done. We're going to work on those things, but we're not talking about them. We're just going to get the strategy right. And, you know, Washington, she was absolutely amazing winning the title, and then the run obviously in Canada and Cincinnati leading into the open and to do it in the manner that she did in that final as well was so impressive. And let's not forget the last 19 year old American that won the U S open was a certain person by the name of Serena Williams. So uh, it's taken her a little bit longer than we've expected to get there, but it's good to see. And also she feels like she's been a pro for like forever, but let's not <laughs> yeah. forget she's still only 19 years of age. You referenced it. 2023 is going to be remembered as the year of Novak Djokovic, 27 and one in the majors at age 36. What I keep coming back to Greg is the fact that he just continues to stay motivated at his age at, you know, pick your metric, right? The number of majors he's won, the amount of money he has, the fact that he is the greatest player ever by all numbers, yet he's still out here, you know, playing an hour, 44 minute set and set two against Medvedev still in the fight. What do you think is pushing him at this point? to continue to extend his greatness and his reign. Well, he wants to be known as the greatest of all time, not even having a debate about it. There's only one athlete in sport, I can think, especially in American sport, Tom Brady. I mean, look at all the Super Bowls he's won. Ironically, Tom Brady was there watching Novak Djokovic. 
Novak to me is the best athlete on the planet at the moment, bar any sport. I don't care what sport you're talking about. His consistency, what he's doing on court and what he's doing at his age, nobody else has done before apart from Tom Brady with those Super Bowl wins. So uh, right now I'd say he's the GOAT, wanting 27, 28 majors and distancing himself from the pack. He's tied Margaret Court with 24. He not only wants to be the best male <laughs> tennis player, he wants to be the best tennis player, male, female, anything. An Olympic gold next year in Paris is huge for Novak. 36 is what I just keep coming back to because we've seen runs like this. I mean, we've seen Djokovic do this. Obviously, Federer, McEnroe had 84. There's been iconic tennis years, but never this late in the game. That's just the marvel. And it's, look, and it was like, I think it was Sitsipas who said that Djokovic's diet is the greatest thing in sports, his ability to manage his body. But there's truth to that, right? The fact that he's so healthy, so fit, and can do things like this at what we would consider post-prime? Well, I think he's the most professional. Even we heard Rafa talking about it, saying uh, on Instagram and Twitter, he was saying, look, I had so many injuries throughout. Novak's always been healthy. He's the guy who's always gotten through physically. And that in itself is a skill. People don't look at recovery, health, consistency, all those things. And to have that motivation and drive at 36 years young is incredible. I mean, I was brain dead by the time <laughs> I was 36, just playing some social tennis and some champions, uh, champions tennis on the, uh, on the senior tour. So for him to do this at this high level and still be the best player on the planet is exceptional. Let's enjoy it because this is a very rare thing to see yeah. in the sport. And I think he's finally getting all the credit he deserves because, you know, he's always under the shadows of Federer and Adele with the love and, the admiration and now he's really getting what he deserves from what he's accomplishing and also coming up next year he's got the australian open his most successful major so i have a feeling 25 26 is in store for next year at least i did want to get your thoughts though because everyone's had an opinion i wanted to hear yours the ben shelton match the guy that got a little heated with novak djokovic <laughs> i didn't have a problem with it i'm also a fan of some other sports too i know some tennis people might not have liked his celebrations, then Djokovic kind of giving it right back to him. But what was your reaction to Djokovic hanging up the phone? Oh, well, <laughs> Novak needs to get himself motivated. He's very disciplined. He had the crowd against him, you know, obviously going for the American youngster up and coming buck. Yeah. And uh, whatever he does, does to get himself going, why not? I know um, Shelton's dad wasn't too happy with the behavior. I read about that on, on, on GQ. We talked about but that's part of getting into the battle and so forth. And Shelton didn't mind it so much. So I don't mind it from Novak. Yeah. You know, in sport, it's like sometimes you don't always do the politically correct things. But in the heat of the moment, sometimes you, you do these celebrations and things. And we're talking about it. So it's bringing more fans to the game. Yeah, that's the name of the game. There's more interest as a result. And uh, Ben Shelton, somebody I, I did want to hear your perspective on as a big server if he's in the club now. The, I don't know if there's a group text message going on, but he's got a lot of games. Some of it's raw. You know, the serve is impressive. For me, Greg, it's going to be about can he learn to grind out wins when he because he's clearly a big match player. He's proven that already, but he didn't have a great tour season, seven and eighteen coming into the open. How can he grind out match wins, get through when he's not at his best, and play players that might not have the the center court appeal like Novak Djokovic? How he does on the tour season? Well. I think also year two is always the most difficult. So he wasn't as good as he was last season. Good news for him is his dad, Brian Shelton, was a very good professional, won two tour titles, I believe, in Newport, Rhode Island. Um, so he's got a good family, good team of people around him. He's got the firepower. As you say, 
He needs to have a B, C, and a D game, but he's still young. Got a massive serve, massive weapons, big forehand, good athlete, but just needs to have that defensive capabilities when the A game isn't working. So he's just got to get those balance and add those little extra dimensions. And I think he will. He's got plenty of time. He's got good people around him, and why not? And for American tennis, you know, it's great in the men's game as well as in the women's. We know about Coco, obviously. Mm-hmm. But having Tiafo playing Shelton in the quarters of a major is great. Then you've got Fritz as well. You need one of these young bucks to be in a slam final or try to win one because, you know, it was great that Andy Ruddock was there handing out the prizes for the U.S. Open. But I think it's uh, about time we see an American man in the finals, if not win, one of these majors, which is going to be a big, big ask with Alcaraz and obviously Djokovic playing so well. I don't know if you saw the video that went viral, Murray giving Draper a ride back in the car, but that was, we're going to try to splice it into the video, but Draper, a nice 21-year-old kid celebrating the win, singing some of the proclaimers, and Murray just fully embracing his uh, older man stage of life was just phenomenal. It it is great to see, and also, Jack had his debut, so he was the 323rd player to represent uh, his country in Davis Cup or in Fed Cup. Um, so that in itself was a great feat. He got off to a winning win. And it's like kind of the passing of the torch, I would say, because Murray's the older statesman. Hard to say, hard to believe saying that, because <laughs> I, I was the older statesman when he first came on as a 17 or 18-year-old. And where has the time gone? But uh, he's always been good with the younger generation, giving back to them, spending a lot of time working with them. And He follows every level, whether it's in the futures, the challengers, and sees what all the British players are doing. So he's got a great relationship with the next generation coming up. And, uh, you know, as you said, it was great that he he gave that tribute to his grandma, unfortunately passed, as well as, you know, spending the time with the youngsters in the car singing the proclaimers. Good Scottish music for Andy, obviously. (laughs) Now we turn to another Hall of Famer, as Pam Shriver is our next guest on the Best of Tennis Channel Inside It. Shriver discusses how she added a new role to her professional life, joining Donna Vekic's team as a coach and doing it by pure happenstance. She also dives into Coco Goff's rise, Igas Fiontech's resurgence, and which matchups at the top of the women's game she enjoys watching the most. Have you enjoyed that process and, and learned some things about not just her game and her style, but the coaching process being on the other side of it, knowing that you've been involved in the game for so long? But this is a different role for you. Yeah, it's first time. I mean, it's really crazy. I'm 61. I've been playing the sport since I was four or five years old. It's been my primary A career as a player and then B career as a broadcaster. And then to throw in that I could have a new experience yeah. um, at, at this late in the game just shows you how wonderful the sport is. And I, I have enjoyed it. I mean, I coached a little bit at like my kids at middle school and I've done a little bit of casual coaching on my home court. Nothing like this, but also the neat thing is to understand what it means in this day and age to be a part of a team. Right. So Donna has a couple of great European-based um, people on her team. Nick Horvat, who's Croatian, is her primary coach, and Yannick is in charge of the um, off-court fitness and also the physical therapy. He kind of combines both roles. In Europe, they do that a lot where it's not like you need one person to help you with your training and mm-hmm. another person to help you keep yourself healthy. Um, and then we're looking to add actually next year is a really good consistent hitting partner because I can't hit anymore. I mean, I can <laughs> feed some balls yeah. and then Nick is a little bit, you know, older as far as it goes to be able to hit, uh, in the kind of way that Donna needs. So we're always trying to yeah. help and figure out how to add to the team. Well, hopefully you get, hopefully you get some nice candles out of it at least. <laughs> I mean, I've bought a yeah. couple, I okay. bought a couple for my kids yeah. and, um, went to the little Wimbledon reception where I saw Tiafo walking by and I <laughs> roped 
Francis in to come in and support Donna's candle effort. You know, it's a ho-hum year, right? Everyone's like, oh, it's a letdown year. She just won her 60th match. So it'd be nice to have a letdown year like that. You just had a sense, right, that she would adjust. And that's why I... There's no direct comparison sports-wise to tennis, but it is almost like a combat sport, one-on-one. There's adjustments. She was being chased. You knew that she would find a way to retool her game. I think this is the least shocking bounce back I can think of. Well, and you think about the great players through the years, um, the ones that have been at the top who maybe lose a spot or two in the rankings, they tend to respond pretty yeah. well. You know, you think about how Serena responded to, say, having losses, um, the revenge tour that she might have been on at certain points of her career. And I think Iga took that when she faced Coco. I mean, obviously, Coco had the wrong side of that set after set after set, was able to come out on top in uh, Cincinnati. And then Iga, you know she would have gone into that next match after the loss, totally motivated to figure some things out. And I, I, what I see from Iga since she lost the number one ranking is certainly she described a little more freedom to, to try and figure out some new wrinkles in her game, whether it's coming to net more. Yeah. Uh, using her second serve with a little more authority. So it's kind of fun to see the best try and get even better. The pressure is, it's going to be their relative, but not being hunted every week. We're seeing it with Sabalenka. You're number one in the world, and that might not, I mean, Iga could get it back at the finals, but it's a different level of pressure. It's a huge honor, but everyone chasing you. I mean, I don't know that anyone who hasn't felt it could even relate. Yeah, I mean, I only felt it at being at the top of the doubles, which is yeah. a totally different feeling. But um, having lived alongside Martina for all those years, really close to Chris Everett and some other number one players, um, it really is interesting to see the best. And we've seen it on the men's side for the last 20 years, how well the big three was able to just, you know, attempt to keep their position at number one. Or if they lost it. Mm-hmm. They're like unicorns, though. Like, you can't even compare them to normal like people. Well, what's interesting about 2023 is I think it'll yeah. go down as the first year that we get an indication what the sport's going to be like after mm-hmm. the big three. And I'll say it's looking pretty good as we sit yeah. here talking in mid-October. Well, we've seen some of these teens not just get limited. They've actually gone above and beyond after they have this ranking breakthrough. Coco, obviously, is the great example. A good first outing, returning to the court after... You know, we mentioned after winning the U.S. Open, the life-changing moment, we mentioned that Iga was going to adjust. But what have you seen? Obviously, she wins the major, works with Brad Gilbert, works tirelessly on her game. But in the last year or so, since the last time we talked, what developments have you seen? How has she honed her skills the most and become a major champion? Well, if you'd asked me that right after Wimbledon, I would have had a totally different answer. Um, The response that Coco and the team has had since Wimbledon by adding – you know, where I know Pear Reba was hired a little bit before Brad Gilbert, but to, to, to be able to merge those voices together, um, to have the presence of the dad to be able to step back from at least being in the box, I mean, obviously he's still very much involved. I thought it was a really mature decision by Coco and the team to bring on who they brought on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to me it was a clear, it was almost like in a m- much less high-profile way, a little bit what I went through with Donna, which is, Bring a clear voice, help get rid of some of the noise that develops in your head. Um, certainly there hadn't been a shot that was as criticized as much as the Coco Goff forehand um, all year long through Wimbledon. And then for her to be able to figure out how to emotionally put this shot in the right place. Like the forehand's not a total disaster as long as her footwork's okay and she has the right racket head speed. Mm-hmm. But she needed to change her mindset. I felt like she got caught up in all the mm-hmm. questions yeah. about it. Instead of worrying about what makes her great on the court, which is her speed, her serve, and her emotional toughness. 
I'm excited to see where it goes because we're at the spot with women's tennis where, I mean, the final field, These are this is as adequately loaded a final field as we've had in a long time. Top 10, all but Pagula made a major final. This is a pretty deep field. Yeah, it's exciting. Um, when you think about, like, Muhova, what she was able to do, almost winning Roland Garros <laughs> over Iga. Mm-hmm. Um, to see Vondrasova come through, win Wimbledon. It, it, you know, to me, it's the best of both worlds. You have some players like Sabalenka, Rybakina, obviously Iga, Coco, Pagula, really defending their top 10 ranking, or in the case of most of those I mentioned, top five. Um, but also you have some newcomers and you have yeah. some opportunities. So I think it's a really good balance right now. Yeah, we did talk. I think it was the first time where you're like, I'd like to see some, you know, more consistency at the top. And I think we're getting it. I mean, I think we're, it's not, it's hard to get to your era where it was just the same dominant Hall of Fame women. And maybe when you were playing, it would have been nice to have a couple less, yeah, but certainly. <laughs> but it is nice now that we're not seeing as many, I don't want to say flukes, but as many one and done runs. And then back to the mean. Well, also, I'm kind of, um, I'm sort of eager to look at the last five years who had breakthroughs, who kind of disappeared for a bit for whatever reason, physical or just things that mm-hmm. they, their life was kind of turned upside down by the success. And let's see if Andrescu can remain healthy for yeah. a period of time, make a push back towards the top 10. You know, how will Radakanu come back after the surgeries? Will, will she be able to continue her promise um, and maybe Radicano will have a chance to reset and have more of yeah. a normal trajectory towards the top. Yeah, you were on that as well. Like it's and Osaka. Sorry, and I Osaka. mean and, and come in, we got some great maternity leaves continuing. <laughs> yeah, the sport just keep the train just keeps rolling like it doesn't stop. Remember, it wasn't that long ago that match in Asia, uh, Osaka and Andrescu. It was like a three hour classic, and you know, unfortunately for you know, fortunately or unfortunately, things are going to happen, but. Do you, do you have, before we move on, do you have a favorite kind of matchup stylistically? I know you're just a tennis nerd like me. There's some good rivalries brewing and styles, and I just want to know if a women's rivalry is sticking out to you. Well, I think there's a few that are starting to come to the top. Um, first off, I'll just say as far as styles, like I never would have thought I would have enjoyed two players bashing the ball <laughs> as hard as each other as Rybaka That's, and Sabalenka. Uh, that ran down. Final. It's, I mean, that was just unbelievable. It reminded yeah. me a little bit of a 30-year-ago <laughs> match when um, Capriati took on Celis in the semifinals yep. of the U.S. Open, and it was 7-6 in the third to Celis, but it was like this knockdown, <laughs> drag-out power clash that wasn't full of unforced yeah. errors, and that's kind of what happened. So that was great <laughs> to see, but generally matches that I like the most are contrasting style matches where you can sort of see a lot more of the chess moves. Yeah, Iga Sabalenka or, you know, Coco Sabalenka in that regard. I, it was crazy. I had that, like, Sabalenka or Vodka, You wouldn't think that'd be, you know, the style that works, but it does. Maybe it's the contrasting emotions, like the sound of metal in Sabalenka and the sound of silence. Rabakina just doesn't react. It's the craziest thing I've seen. You know, I hadn't really thought about that. <laughs> yeah. it's n- not only do you have contrasting mm-hmm. styles game style, but you mm-hmm. also have contrasting styles with emotions. Yeah. So th- that was on um, cue there for yeah. Rybakina. <laughs> And Sabalenka. Reacting to one that we just saw, you know, that we just just happened last night. Ben Shelton took out Yannick Sinner in a three-set, intense, highly entertaining matchup. We'll get to Sinner in a second, but Ben Shelton again, I mean, he's professing it. Pam, he is built for these big stages and big moments. And he brings something to tennis that I think was maybe missing a little bit. And it's so refreshing to see another dynamic personality who is backing it up against the best. And, and it's a combination of uh, the young, fresh face and the bold personality. Um, you know, he was part of one of the more controversial moments, a couple of them at the U.S. Open, 
when he hung when he answered the phone, <laughs> answered the call against yeah. Tiafo, and then and then Djokovic kind of turned the tables and did the same thing. And but it was it's kind of like cool for tennis to be like yeah. in the trash talking elite <laughs> yeah. of, of athletes. Why not? Why not tennis? And you know, I think. Um, yeah, Ben Shelton along with Alcaraz, Coco Goff. I mean, they they lead the charge of this 19, 20, 21 year old age group that's pretty special. The final clip from the best of Inside In features another prominent broadcaster in the world of tennis, none other than Patrick McEnroe. The new president of the International Tennis Hall of Fame joined the podcast to discuss how he became captivated by the sport and what he learned from his famous older brother, Johnny Mack. He also put into perspective the accomplishments of Novak Djokovic in 2023 and explained why Ben Shelton and Sebastian Korda could be the ones to end the major drought for the American men. It's Patrick McEnroe's time to shine on the best of Tennis Channel Inside In. How much of your falling in love with the sport and then going at it competitively on the professional level was following in your brother's footsteps and how much of it was just falling in love with the sport on your own? Because that's the part I don't think a lot of us, myself included, really know about your individual story. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it's a little combination of both because, you know, obviously as the youngest of three boys, um, I did really whatever my brothers did. I have another brother, Mark, who is a good tennis player, didn't make it a profession. So whatever my brothers did, whether it was playing stickball, playing stoop ball, you know, going down to the field and playing basketball or playing tennis, you know, that's what that's what I wanted to do. I always had uh, a special affinity for tennis mostly probably Mitch because I just happened to be pretty good at it. You know, I love sports. I love playing soccer. I played soccer and basketball, uh, baseball, you know, through school. I even played soccer all the way through high school, which my brother did as well. But tennis was something that I liked the individual nature of it as as much as I love team sports. You know, the idea of being out there on your own. I mean, I have great memories of hitting against the wall at the Douglaston Club, and that's how I learned how to play where we grew up in, in Queens, New York, which was sort of a precursor to me even going to the Port Washington Tennis Academy. So between that and going to Port as a kid and participating in the groups and just being around tennis, um, that that was really number one. It was, it was it, and, and in fact, as I got older and my brother became famous, it, it was actually more of a challenge being John's brother, you know, because he was so famous and because I wasn't, you know, quite as good as him, although I got to be a pro, which as I'm learning in my years now at our tennis academy, that in and of itself is a um, is hugely difficult to accomplish. So uh, yeah. but over the years, as I was growing up, I had to like kind of look myself in the mirror a lot and say, why am I doing this? Because I had to deal with a lot of crap, you know, being <laughs> John's younger brother. Um, but at the end of the day, it was because I love the game. I love the sport and um, I was pretty good at it. From a tennis side, and I know you guys had similar styles. No one really plays like your brother, John, obviously. Yeah, but what, what did you take from him and what kind of did you work on to really make your own game and, and kind of not rebel, but just put your own spin on how you play the game? Yeah, I mean, I think we both had very good uh, hand-eye coordination. I mean, he obviously is a whole nother level, but that was that was one of my strengths, which was sort of seeing the ball, taking it early. You know, the return of serve was was definitely my strength and my game. My back, my two-handed backhand was my best shot. Uh, but I didn't have the speed that he had. I didn't have the serve that he had. So I was a little bit more of a baseline player, counterpuncher. I couldn't get to the neck because I just wasn't quick enough and I didn't have a good enough serve to serve in volley with any consistency. So I sort of found my way um, playing more of a, 
I guess calling it an aggressive baseline game when I could. As I said, I was a little bit more of a counter puncher. So I, what I could take from him, I did, which was, you know, good hands, seeing the ball early. But as you noted in, in, in your question, nobody plays like him. So it was hard to really – I never really tried to emulate his game. But our coach that we had when we were growing up, Tony Palafox, who we met at the Port Washington Tennis Academy when we were both quite young, he ended up leaving there, as did we, um, relatively uh, early in our junior careers – um, was was also known for having great hands and taking the ball early. So he used to teach me that, especially on the return of serve, which was you know definitely the strength of my game. It is an interesting role, right? Being a captain, where you're you're coaching on the now there's coaching in tennis, but you're coaching in the match, and there's you know you don't want to deal too drastically with players. But what was your strategy like when you were a captain in some of these big matches, dealing with the players like Roddick, like Blake, like Marty Fish? What was your strategy as a captain? It really depended on the player, Mitch, and you're 100% right. I mean, you know, especially being the Davis Cup captain, I didn't spend that many weeks a year with him. I tried to keep in touch with him over the course of the year, of the season. I, I made a real effort to try to keep in touch with their coaches so I knew kind of what they were working on. But I would say for the most part, Mitch, less is more. I mean, these are professionals. These guys are at the top of the game. They're used to being out there on their own. So um, you could get yourself into more trouble if you say something stupid, which Roddick would remind me of many times. You know, he, I, he'd say, yeah, it was the stupidest idea I've ever heard. Uh, you know, the Bryan brothers are a little bit different. They, you know, especially Mike, the right-hander, you know, he liked to, you to talk to him, you know, just remind him of very basic things. James Blake was, was different in that he kind of had his, his, his game plan. Roddick was actually a little more analytical about what was going on, um, it, you know, during the match. So you really have to pay attention, like, because he, he could kind of call you on it. Um, you know, Marty was a little more happy-go-lucky. So everybody was a little bit different. But I learned this, Mitch, years ago from my, my great college coach, Dick Gould at Stanford, when I spent my four years there. And he said, when I became the captain or when I was about to become the captain, I called him for advice. And he said, you know, in tennis, because it's an individual sport, the one thing I learned over the years was to treat everybody fairly, but not necessarily the same. Right. And I thought that was great advice because, you know, if it was Andy Roddick coming in, having just, you know, won a big tournament, you know, you pretty much let him do what he's going to do as far as practice goes and how much he wants to practice. If it's a young and up and coming guy, you know, you're going to say, listen, you're going to practice for four hours. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. You're going to do this. So it really depended on the individual and particularly when you got into the match, which is when it's on the line, you know, that's where you can, you can say something that might really help, or you could say something that might really hurt. And you don't, as a captain, you, that, that's not the place you want to be. Well, first with Novak Djokovic at age 36, I mean, there's not much more. I mean, I've been waxing poetically all year, Patrick, for what he's done career wise, just shattering the record books, but him at 36, like you were talking about this before, what that age used to mean for tennis. Now it seems like in ways he's widening his, his gap, his dominance with the field. It, it really is incredible. I mean, I remember sitting there reminiscing um, as we were talking earlier with my brother at, at the Wimbledon final after the match ended, and we were sort of setting up the rest of the year. And I sort of said offhandedly, you know, I feel like this is going to motivate Djokovic even more, you know, moving forward. And I wouldn't have predicted that he'd go 18-0. and 0 you know, since Wimbledon final uh, and win three huge titles, including the U.S. Open. To me, the amazing thing, Mitch, is is not 
his his total domination is obviously incredible, but it's also like how many matches he's winning that are pretty close. You know, it's mm-hmm. not like he's you know some matches he dominates, but you know, like you go to Paris, which he just won, and you know Rublev played the match of his life and it went the distance, and you know somehow you know Novak can steamroller obviously, but he can also you know has this ability to just play the big points better than anyone and just win the close matches as well. Which yeah. Normally, as you get older, that becomes a little bit more difficult. Uh, but yeah. normal is not the word we're going to use with him because it, it it's just it really is incredible what he's continuing to do. And I think it's the motivation that's the most incredible. I was actually talking to one of our coaches here at our academy who's Serbian, and we you know he, we always talk about Novak. And I said it was right after he just won Paris, and I said, "Wow, you know, he did it again." He goes, he goes. It's amazing. He says for him, it's he's he's never satisfied. You know, he's never sat. He's he's always he's he's so hungry to keep mm-hmm. going uh, after all he's done. So let's enjoy it because it's pretty incredible. Uh, there's obviously as you as you intimated, great young talent on the rise um, that are right there, and we've got some great young talent in the U.S., which I'm very excited about. I hope I hope one of those guys can one or two can step up and, and win a major or be in a major final. But there's certainly a lot of great stories to look forward to as we look to the year-end championships and then, of course, the beginning of next year in 2024. And you mentioned those Americans that are coming up as well. We have four now in the top 15. It's been, you know, the unfortunate stat 20 years since the last major champion going on 21. But for the first time in recent memory, it does feel like that streak could be coming to an end. The four players there, Ben Shelton, obviously a lot to like about his game. Sebastian Cord is not even in the top 15, but a young player to watch. Are you finally seeing maybe the tides turn that there's not only the depth of American men's tennis, but some real potential for some slam winners on the men's side? Well, I think we've seen the depth coming for the last few years. So that was always our goal at the USTA. I mean, it's, it's hard to have a goal of, you know, finding the next Serena Williams, right, or the next Pete Sampras. That, that's really not an achievable goal. But I think what was an achievable goal was just sort of having strength by numbers, which I'm glad to see um, the U.S. has been able to do, you know, particularly on the men's side. Women, we've always had it. And we've also had, you know, some top top all-time greats as well. On the men's side, it's been more difficult to find those players that we think have a chance to actually win a major. And so, you know, um, you've got those four guys, you know, the more veteran of the of the guys with Tiafo, with Fritz, uh, with Tommy Paul, who stepped it up the last couple of years. Opelka, I hope, can come back and be a factor, you know, after his long injuries. He's a great young kid, too. But I think the, the two guys you mentioned may be the two guys that have the best chance to actually win one. Um, in Corda, who's got the best all-around game of any, any of those players. And Shelton, who's got sort of the most explosive game, you know, with the serve, the forehand, just the sheer athleticism. Um, if his, I call, you know, with someone like him, I say he's got the most intangibles. Once yeah. he once he has the most tangibles with the basic <laughs> bread and butter tennis, I think he can win a major. You know, I think he's that good. He's that explosive. Um, mm-hmm. And I think Corda, if he can just get a little bit stronger, a little bit more physical in the way he plays, particularly off the serve. I love his all-court game and his ability to play, you know, any style. But it's nice to see we've got a great group. And those other guys are just solid as rocks. I just don't know if they've got enough to actually win 
a major. I think Tiafo, Fritz, Paul, they can be knocking on the door, but I feel like they need some help. Whereas with the other two guys, I feel like they could just burst through and just, you know, be that good. Thanks to all our guests on Tennis Channel Inside and not only on this episode, but throughout the entire year. It was their willingness to take the time to chat that enhanced this podcast and took it to new heights in 2023, and we're only going to go higher in 2024. Tennis Channel Inside In is available on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, which can be found by going to tennis.com slash podcast. And you can listen to it on all your favorite podcast platforms by searching Tennis Channel Inside In and clicking subscribe. Whether you're on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or iHeart, when you subscribe, you will get automatically downloaded episodes directly to your listening device each and every week. It's that simple. And while you're there, leave a rating and a review. Let us know how much you think of this podcast. It really does mean a lot. Part two of the Best of Tennis Channel Inside In will be released next Thursday, featuring more outstanding content from this past year. From all of our guests and all the hardworking people at Tennis Channel, my name is Mitch Michaels, and thank you for listening to Tennis Channel Inside In. Have a Merry Christmas, a wonderful holiday season, and keep enjoying tennis.